Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies to give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. For the past few months, we've been taking our inspiration from articles in our annual publication, The World in 2020. In this episode, we'll be asking... How difficult will it be for Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, to keep both China and America happy in 2020? Mr. Trudeau has been trying to not alienate one and try to warm things up with the other. And is the future of video gaming to be found in the cloud? The idea these days that gaming means buying an expensive box and plugging it into your TV and doing everything in your own living room, that's maybe not the way things are going. But we'll start by considering the outlook for nuclear arms control. 50 years after the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT, came into force to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. Not for many years, The Economist wrote at the time, has a broad international agreement been concluded that involves such specific and far-reaching obligations in the political, economic and military fields. But have signatories to the NPT been doing what they promised? 50 years on, tensions remain high between Russia and America, and the NPT's ability to curb the spread of nuclear weapons is in doubt. Joining me to discuss all this is Shashank Joshi, The Economist defence editor. Welcome, Shashank. Thanks, Tom. Okay, well, let's look back because it's the 50th anniversary of the NPT. If you look at it over that long term, it's been quite successful, hasn't it? It's done really well. If you look at the 1950s or early 60s before it was signed, you have these CIA assessments of, you know, which countries will be the next to get nukes. And these are sort of apocalyptic things. You know, they've got projections saying we'll have dozens and dozens of countries that will have nukes. Don't forget, you had countries like Sweden that had their own nuclear programs. You had countries like West Germany flirting with their nuclear programs. In South Asia, India, Pakistan, in East Asia, it looked as though you could have a world in which nuclear weapons would be as common as cruise missiles are today. That didn't happen. And one of the reasons it didn't happen is probably the NPT and the various constraints that built up around that. And in fact, we've had a situation now where only 13 states have ever had nuclear weapons and four of them gave them up. So that's quite impressive. However, 50th birthday of the treaty. They have one of these RevCon conferences. What does that stand for, by the it's way? It's a review conference where they all get together, all the parties of the NPT and take stock of how are we doing? How's progress going with all the various parts of the NPT and what, what's the route ahead? And these RevCons happen every five years, don't they? So what's the mood going to be like at this year's? I think it's going to feel like a wait. It'll be grim. You know, there's this, it was renewed permanently 25 years ago. So these review conferences don't settle whether it will continue or not. It will. But the sense of trust in it is completely collapsing. And that's partly to do with the appalling state of nuclear diplomacy with rogue nuclear powers, you could call them like Iran and North Korea. Trump administration has torn apart a nuclear deal with Iran. Its talks with North Korea are going nowhere. But it's also a sense that two biggest nuclear powers of all, the US and Russia, who between them have more nuclear weapons than everyone else combined, are completely violating the spirit of the treaty itself. So in recent years, we've had a number of treaties that have actually resulted in the reduction of numbers of weapons, haven't they, in in both the US and Russia. And there was the New START deal that Barack Obama did. What's happening now then? So are things going in the wrong direction there as well? 
Yes. So not only are the US and Russia modernizing their arsenals at breakneck speed, plowing billions of dollars into building more advanced warheads, new types of weapons that are seen as more risky, some quite crazy weapons like a you know nuclear-powered cruise missile in the Russian case that blew up last year, killing seven people. But the treaties that you talk about are also collapsing. Things like the INF Treaty that was signed at the end of the Cold War. Russia cheated on it and America walked out in 2019. The other example being New Start. This is the last remaining big treaty that caps U.S. and Russian warhead numbers, and it's up for renewal in January 2021. It can be renewed if both sides agree, but the Americans are saying we're not going to renew it unless China joins in. Now that's not going to happen. China has a fraction of the number of bombs that the U.S. and Russia does, but this is becoming a serious issue because if we don't have New Start, if it collapses, not only will the two sides have less insight into their respective arsenals, and it'll cost billions of dollars in spy satellites and whatever else to get the same level of insight, but you won't have. Any numerical cap on these enormous arsenals for the first time in forty years or so, and also the other signatories to the MPT will rightly say, "Look, the whole deal here was meant to be that the big powers that had lots of nukes would give them up in return for the small powers that don't have nukes not trying to get hold of them." And if the big powers aren't doing that anymore, then isn't it open season for everyone else? So, what's the long-term prognosis for nuclear arms control? As a result of this, that's less clear. It's looking a bit up in the air at the moment. They're absolutely furious at the way the U.S. and Russia have handled this, and you see even close American allies like Turkey saying, "Well, if these people don't follow the rules, perhaps we should entertain the idea of nukes ourselves." You have countries like South Korea, even people within Japan and Taiwan who flirt with the idea of. You know, perhaps we should think about this ourselves. If the world's getting more dangerous, American alliances are less reliable, and the nuclear constraints look less robust. So it's back to the 1960s in that sense that it's a pre-NPT world that we're heading back towards. Possibly, I would say it's not necessarily that bad yet. There are all sorts of other initiatives as well that are pushing back against the nuclear states. So, for example, one of them is something called the Nuclear Ban Treaty. It's been approved by 122 countries in 2017. You have about 70 countries have signed it, or 70 states have, you know, may include things like the Vatican have signed it. And the idea is it effectively bans nuclear weapons. And you could say, okay, so what? The nuclear powers haven't signed it. This is completely symbolic. Who cares? But if you talk to sort of French or British diplomats, they are slightly worried about this. They this think is a UN treaty. Then so it's, it a, it's a UN treaty. Of... It's in the General Assembly, where sheer numbers make a difference, not the sort of cosy boys' club of the Security Council, where all the nuclear powers are safely ensconced. And the idea is a treaty like this could begin to compete with legitimacy against the NPT, and it could say, well, if the NPT doesn't do anything, let's just ban these nukes and delegitimize them, delegitimize their possession, and embarrass the countries that possess them, and. In time, some diplomats worry this could become customary international law in ways that makes lawyers in countries like the UK or US say we're in a dicey situation here, and that is pushing the nuclear discussions into much more rancorous places where the nuclear haves are in much more bitter place with the have-nots. Okay, well, bringing things back to 2020, then give us some scenarios for how this might play out. I think the best case scenario is that Revcon is not a complete dumpster fire. That the two sides aren't at each other's throats, accusing each other of sort of reckless, provocative actions. That the Iran deal is somehow salvaged with Iran under sanctions pressure and Trump wanting to take a deal into his re-election campaign. That North Korea talks come back onto track. The North stops provocative missile launches. 
But that's not the scenario I see. I see something a lot more grim, a lot more messy. I think tensions are going to grow. Support for the ban treaty is probably going to rise. Iran's nuclear program is already expanding. And I think this is going to take us into a very dangerous place in the years ahead. Well, it's all rather sobering. Shashank, please stay with us as we look at another 50th birthday taking place in 2020. Yes, this year also marks 50 years of diplomatic relations between Canada and China, yet neither government is in the mood to celebrate. Good morning. Canada may now be caught up in the fight between China and Washington. Senior executive of Chinese telecoms giant Huawei has been arrested in Canada. Now China is demanding the release of Huawei's chief financial officer. Breaking news out of China about two Canadian men detained without official charges since December. China's embassy in Canada released a statement blasting the decision. It reads in part, This is not a merely judicial case, but a political persecution against a Chinese high-tech enterprise. And to discuss this uncertainty, we're joined by Madeleine Drohan, who has covered Canada for The Economist for many years. Welcome, Madeleine. Hello, Tom. Okay, so Justin Trudeau narrowly won re-election as Prime Minister last year and is now trying to build bridges with China. Why is that his most important foreign policy priority? China is extremely important to Canada, mostly for trade reasons. And there's a bit of a backstory here. After Donald Trump was elected, Canada started searching around for ways to diversify its trade because it's extremely dependent on the U.S. And Mr. Trump has not proved to be a reliable trade partner. So China was seen as the great hope of expanding Canadian trade, Canadian exports. And unfortunately, all that went down the tubes in December 2018 when Canada arrested a top Huawei executive at the request of the U.S. and has been holding her for extradition to the U.S. China has taken this very badly, has really cooled off relations with Canada, and has started to hold up some of uh, the key Canadian exports to China. So Mr. Trudeau really has to get relations back on track. So how's he been walking that line then between America and China? Very, very cautiously. (laughs) Canada can't afford to uh, alienate the U.S. no matter who the president is. Uh, The U.S. takes something like three quarters of Canadian exports and supplies about half of Canadian imports. The two economies are very closely entwined. So Canada can't all of a sudden decide to go against the U.S. and side with China. On the other hand, China is the growing trading superpower, and Canada doesn't want to be on the outs with it either. So Mr. Trudeau has been trying to not alienate one and try to warm things up with the other. So where does the trial of Meng Wanzhou, who is this um, senior Huawei executive and in fact daughter of the founder of the company, where does that fit in with all the geopolitics? Well, China's made it very clear that its bottom line is nothing is going to happen with Canada unless it releases Ms. Meng. And Canada's response to that, of course, is, well, we've got a judicial process here that has to be followed. Right now, there's actually a couple of court cases going on, but in one of them, the Canadian courts are trying to decide whether, in fact, Ms. Meng should be extradited to the U.S. And I think she's countersuing as well about how she was arrested in the first place. The situation is not going to resolve itself very quickly because these extradition processes can go on for a long time. We've had 
people that have fought extradition in uh, Canada for up to 13 years, I think, was the last one. So it's not looking like the relationship between Canada and China is going to uh, warm up anytime soon. Shashankar, defence editor, who's still here with me, has been listening in. What's your take on all of this? Well, let's remember here, Canada is a member of the Five Eyes Spying Pact, the other members being America, Britain, Australia and New Zealand. So the choices it makes, both in its relationship with China, over things like Huawei, these are very consequential, not just for Canada, but in a way for the the collective West and the Anglophone West. And this is, I think, part of a pattern of Chinese behavior that those other countries and indeed other countries in the West are watching closely. When countries do something China doesn't like, it likes to peel the target away from its allies and use its economic heft to sort of hammer them until they give in. We saw this with Norway a few years ago. We've seen it with Japan. And now we're seeing it with Canada. And I think what's most worrying is not just that China uses these sorts of bullying tactics, but the way it does so. And the most worrying aspect here is hostage taking. We have, of course, two Canadians, academics and researchers, who have been taken effectively hostage in China, held as bargaining chips. And I think a lot of countries will be saying, it's Canada today, that could be us tomorrow. Well, in fact, that was very much the Canadian government's thinking when they tried to get their allies to speak out in favor of these China releasing these hostages. I mean, there was a real campaign by the Canadian government to get other countries to say something for exactly that reason. I'm not sure, though, how well that went over with the Chinese government in that further embarrassing them and getting other people to sort of point to their bad behavior has not resulted in in them budging an inch. And those two Canadians are still being detained in China. Okay, it sounds like there really aren't any good choices here for Justin Trudeau. But um, this is something that we'll be watching closely, not just because of what happens to Canada, but because of its implications for other countries as well. Madeleine Drohan, thanks very much for joining us. A pleasure. Finally, to the world of video games. Magnavox presents Odyssey, the electronic game of the future. Odyssey easily attaches to any brand TV, black and white or colour, to create a close... Since the very first console was launched, the Magnavox Odyssey, which came out in 1972, there's been one thing that's remained constant about the way games are played. Games are traditionally delivered on cartridges, discs, or more commonly today, as digital downloads that are stored on the console's internal hard drive. But this is now changing as it becomes possible to stream games, without the need for a console, from a cloud-based service. The Netflix or Spotify of video games looks like it isn't far away. Forget boxes, forget consoles, just your games, your screens, and electric air. And this electric air is Stadium. I'm joined by Tim Cross, The Economist's technology editor. So, video games. You like video games, I like video games. It's February, the PlayStation 5's just been announced, but I have to say, I'm not terribly excited about it. It seems that the whole kind of console business model is a bit old-fashioned now. So, in the era of the cloud, where is gaming going? Yeah, well, exactly as you say, you know, the idea these days that 
gaming means buying an expensive box and plugging it into your TV and doing everything in your own living room. That's maybe not the way things are going. So uh, we had the PlayStation 5 announcement, as you said, but what's attracted more attention is various announcements around cloud gaming, where instead of buying a, a disc and popping it into your machine at home, the games are run in some remote data center somewhere, your commands are streamed to the data center, and the games stream back to your television. So it's rent a PlayStation when you need it kind of thing, and it's a distant PlayStation or Xbox or whatever in a distant data center. Is that really going to work, though? Because, I mean, for fast Twitch games with really fast reactions, we don't want to be waiting for the internet, do we? Well, so this is the big question, and um, this isn't a new idea. So several companies, including one called OnLive, tried this back in 2008. And it didn't work at all. It didn't really work, and that was exactly one of the reasons that, you know, if if you're playing a game, a game's not like a film, right? A film, it's just a, a video that you play back, so, you know, you don't have to worry about how long it takes the data to get from A to B as long as it gets there. With a game, I'm trying to react to what you're doing. So what I don't want is to push a button and then for my little message to wend its way over the internet, get to some remote computer, join a queue to be processed, get processed, wend its way back to me, then half a second has passed and you've already shot me in the back of the head. But the big companies that are focused on this now reckon that 10 years of investment in the cloud, so we've got more data centers, the data centers are nearer to the consumers, the consumers have faster internet connections. They reckon that collectively this adds up to enough of a change that it's worth giving it a second go. Right. So we're looking at a much cheaper, much dumber box that plugs into my TV or whatever. And then I'm not buying discs. So what is it a sort of Netflix approach where I've got a library of games that I can call up from the cloud? That's the basic idea, although there are various sort of variations on the theme. But yeah, the, the basic idea is instead of spending you know several hundred dollars up front for an Xbox or a PlayStation 5 or whatever, you pay some kind of monthly subscription and in return you get access to games that are stored and played remotely. So Sony's already doing this with something called the PlayStation Now and their model is pretty much like the Netflix model where you pay a flat fee and you get access to hundreds of games and you don't have to sort of buy them individually but you get access to the whole bundle. But I'm doing that using a traditional PlayStation at this point. At the moment you okay. need a PlayStation to run it through, that's right. Okay, but it's actually, the games are actually running remotely though, it's not just... The games are running remote. you can download them if you want but okay. by default they, they run remotely. One of the other sort of entrants into this market is Google, whose Stadia product launched at the end of last year. And they have a different approach where at the moment you have to pay $10 a month. I think there's soon going to be a free tier, but you have to buy the games on top of that. So people are still toying with the business models and trying to figure out exactly what and works best. And you have best. to buy the Stadia device as well, or is that... You also have to pay up front for a piece of hardware, which is basically a, it's a bit like an Xbox controller. Right. It sounds to me like they're going to have to improve that business model a bit, because you know, compared with playing a game on my phone for, for nothing or for, for £5, that's an awful lot to be forking out. Well, yes, and this is the other thing. So we, we've talked a bit about some of the technical problems, and... It would be going a bit far to say that they're completely solved. They're definitely better than they were. But then there's the question of how attractive is this to consumers? And I think on the one hand, you know, not having to fork out up front is quite a good deal. On the other hand, you don't have to do that very often. You know, a console lasts you five or six years. And the people who like gaming, are, they're used to buying consoles. Is there really a massive market of gamers out there who want the graphical power of a console, but more than they want what they get on their smartphone, which frankly is pretty amazing these days, but are put off by the price and will therefore be brought into the market by this? That's what everyone seems to be betting. Do you think this is really going to expand the market? I think it could. I think it, you have to get the business model right. I think, you know, Google's approach, as you said, where, uh, okay, you get rid of one big upfront cost, but you're still paying, you know, 40 50 $60 for a video game. Is that really going to persuade people who are sort of on the edge for financial reasons? I'm not sure that it will. Now, this is going to change the, um, if it does take off, the dynamic 
dynamics in the industry. We've had this three-way fight, essentially, between Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo for the past 20 years. We had various other players before that. But now it's all about not so much which IP you've got, although that's part of it. It's like who's got the biggest cloud computing facilities. How are we going to go from the old world of those familiar Sony, Nintendo, Microsoft players to a new world of people like Google and Amazon? And how are the incumbents going to make that switch, do you think? Well, it leads to some quite weird tie-ups. So last year, for instance, Sony, which, as you said, was Microsoft's sort of fierce rival for 20 years, the PlayStation versus the Xbox. Sony and Microsoft announced that actually they would be working together. And Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud service, which is going to power its xCloud product, also is going to power at least some parts of Sony's PlayStation Now product. So Microsoft have their own service, and then they're hosting a competitor on, on the sort of same computers. And I think... In terms of how you get from A to B, the answer probably is slowly. So if you talk to Microsoft, they will say, no, 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 you know, we don't see this as a full-on replacement for the console just yet. We see this as a sort of market that we're starting to explore. And I think, you know, these changes, they're slow until they're not, if you see what I mean. So I think if anyone really does nail a sort of killer combination of price and a good game library and stable performance, then maybe you would see people switching quite quickly, but I don't think that's happened yet. Right, okay, so this sounds like something that's going to play out over the next few years. Might not quite be ready for prime time now. Well, that was who Tim knows? Cross well, the having acid a really test difficult time playing games it's actually like to play. Purposes, you understand. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>